Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast. I'm Andy Davis, and you are already well into the first sentence of episode 5 of season 11. So if you've got this far, you might as well stick around for the rest, because we've got a topic today that will dazzle all your senses. That's right, in this episode we're talking all about, well, dazzling all your senses. It's obvious that your showroom needs to look great, but do you ever think about how it smells, how it sounds, or how it feels? Does your showroom engage all of your customers' senses? There's a huge amount of research confirming that appealing to all the senses can make customers more inclined to purchase in retail environments. Using scent, music, tactile displays, lighting can create a much more immersive and engaging experience. Now, I love all this kind of stuff, so I'm so pleased that my guest today is Charles Spence. He is a professor of experimental psychology at the Crossmodal Research Laboratory at Oxford University. And we'll be meeting him to find out all about it. But first... This very special episode is brought to you with the support of our good friends at KBB Birmingham 2024, Europe's prime hub for the kitchen bedroom and bathroom industries. The ultimate showcase of innovation is now only days away. It starts on Sunday, March the 3rd at the NEC Birmingham and it runs all the way through to Wednesday the 6th. The exhibition will feature more than 250 top European brands across 26 diverse categories, unveiling cutting edge designs and the latest innovations. Over 15,000 decision makers will be attending from residential, design, retail and contract sectors so it's the prime spot for networking, sourcing and business growth. You can expect renowned brands like Capel, Franca, Vitra and Bora and many more to showcase everything from furniture to appliances to components giving you a glimpse of the future in KBB world. Meet key clients, engage with trendsetters, explore the newest launches and dive into live demonstrations you'll gain valuable insights that will drive your business forward. That's KBB Birmingham 2024. You can register for your free visit to us now at kbb.co.uk. That's kbb.co.uk, and I will see you there. So here is Professor Charles Spence. A very warm welcome to you, sir. Thank you. Now let's start, I think, Charles, if we can, by looking at the basics. You're the head of the Crossmodal Research Laboratory. What exactly does that mean? What do you study there? So I'm a psychologist by training and here at uh, Oxford University's Department of Experimental Psychology. Where my lab, as you mentioned, the Crossmodal Research Laboratory is um, and has been for the last I know, 27 years now sort of dedicated to thinking about the senses, how we hear, see, smell, touch taste the world around us and in particular the lab sort of focuses on how to try and take the latest insights about how the brain combines what we see and hear and touch and taste and smell and give some insights into the design of real world experiences that hopefully more effectively engage the senses Uh, and over the years that's taken us from the design of warning signals for car drivers that stimulate bits of the brain you didn't know you had through to um, working with Dulux paints on on the design of paints that maybe make you more productive or help you to relax and these days we do a lot awful lot in the world of food and drink kind of experience design often funded by food and drinks companies to do research but then having fun with chefs and mixologists plateware designers potters perfumers you name it creating these sort of memorable multi-sensory tasting experiences i mean i find all this stuff absolutely fascinating i'm a total i mean i'm clearly not an expert in it but i find this stuff so interesting this idea that you can you know nudge people one direction or another in in some ways by just the slightest manipulation of of all these different senses i find this absolutely brilliant so i'm so pleased that you're here today now we're obviously talking about kitchen and bathroom retail kitchen bathroom showrooms but um the the idea of all this going into retail uh, i find absolutely uh, fascinating so let's look at how we might apply some of these principles and i think if we, if we can sort of take senses one by one and then we'll kind of join them all up again at the end 
because I'm, I'm wondering, let's start, I suppose, with how you actually get customers into the show, showroom in the first place. I'm thinking about, you know, how you sort of draw them in if they're just kind of walking past. I'm thinking kind of lighting, scene setting, that kind of thing. Uh, yep, so we have over the last uh, decade or two worked quite a lot with um, VF Corporation over in the States who, who uh, own most of the clothing brands you've heard of. Um, thinking about sort of multi-sensory store design and that is kind of the first question that crops up they're thinking about clothing and shoes and such like but regardless of the kind of um uh store setting then the first question is how to get people in through the doors maybe make them curious um and for that i think the uh most obvious and well tried route is sort of through the eyes uh through color and lighting um and while I'm not so much a, a, a vision expert, one thing that stuck with me from that work was this sort of notion of uh, when people walk past uh, the storefront, trying to create this kind of th- cathedral look was 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 the name it was given, such that um, you can sort of see through the front doors and there's something in the distance at the back of the store that's kind of illuminated, a bit like the altar, and that sort of makes people curious. Uh, and the idea was that if you use sort of different layers of lighting not uniformly bright and he had this thing brightly illuminated the very back of the store people say what's that i wonder it's curious it looks interesting and that will sort of draw them in and you got them uh, over the threshold uh, and then that's the time to hit them with all the other sensory cues in your sensory marketing arsenal um of course that's not the only way i suppose uh, there are some stores that use music uh to either repel the kinds of people <laughs> they don't want entering or to uh entice those who do uh one might think of you know the likes of abercrombie and fitch and such like that you know the sort of the the loud pumping music coming out so loud such an intense sort of smell that you know many parents just have to just have to be, leave themselves at the door they can't enter <laughs> which is kind of the idea is that as their offspring go and spend their parents hard-earned cash on the latest t-shirt or whatever it might be uh so smell and that sort of sound are used there and i suppose everyone will be familiar with uh the lush store um and they i guess have capitalized beyond anyone else's wildest imaginations on the power of scent and fragrance so that you know when you're walking down a, a street in some foreign city somewhere and um you can smell that sort of soapy <laughs> clean smell and it's distinctively, distinctively lush, and you know, I don't know where it is yet, but it, there is one, you know, within a hundred meters of me now, uh, and they've used kind of olfactory sensory marketing as a distinctive kind of a touch point with the consumers. Now, again, it's sort of one that maybe divides people. Some love it, some find it too intense, uh, too fragrant, uh, but nevertheless, uh, it is another uh, approach. In I love this idea of sort of creating depth uh, for the passerby. Because I suppose tradition would dictate that, you know, you have a window display. And in that window display, you know, you put you put the, 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 uh, the hero products, if you like, and you put a big light on them. And what's behind that isn't really important. But what you're suggesting here is actually if you've got a fantastic showroom, you want to you create a curiosity by drawing people into all the way to the back. Mm-hmm. I suppose, that, you know, the, 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 the danger might be that uh, if you create that great window display, then people feel like they've, they can see all they need to see without having to cross the threshold. And sort of, you know, there's so much more you can do uh, with somebody actually in the store to engage them, uh, to interact with them, uh, and to nudge them in this way or that. Um, that uh, if that's lost, then um, yeah, there really should be something. You know, you know so, so 
you've got to create that reason, I suppose, to, to, to enter, at least for the sort of passing customer, casually passing customer. And I, I suppose for the kind of showrooms that we're talking about here, there is definitely, you know, a journey around the store that you go from one display to another. You, and you, I suppose you can use the lighting in the same way, can't you? To, you know, when you turn a corner, you, you see another thing that, you, that, that, that sort of piques that curiosity. Yeah, I, I think um, there are these, uh, what do they call them, sort of shopper psychologists. <laughs> Maybe they're, I'm not quite one of those, but um, who, who sort of analyse the way people move around department stores and uh, such like. And I guess we all actually turns out maybe, I don't know, 75% of us turn to the left when we enter a store versus, I don't know, maybe it's 75 to the right, one or the other. But there are, we are sort of, you know, predictable in the way that we uh, navigate through spaces. Um, and if you know that, then those sort of, you know, big players in the industry will strategically place uh, certain items uh, where they believe people will will, will first tread. Um, and, and, and that sort of, you know, creating... Uh, uh, yeah, sort of reveals. I suppose it's a bit like you know the perfect uh, uh, nature scene where there's always like a, a, a path leading in the distance, just going around the corner. You're not quite sure what's there, but your curiosity is piqued and you want to find out. And that's sort of you know, in some sense, deeply satisfying. And again, perhaps helps to draw people further in uh, once you've got them uh, over the, the threshold. I suppose it's the brain's predilection for, for shiny objects, isn't it? You know, we just it's something off in the distance that's glinting. We always want to know what it is. Let's talk about sound a little bit now, because particularly in these showrooms, they're not busy, bustling places. They're not full of people. There isn't a background hubbub to these kind of places. So sound's obviously really important because you have such a blank canvas of things. So talk to me about how the brain filters sound out and how it uses sound to establish the environment that it's in. I think sound is important and probably ever-present, even though we don't often necessarily think much about it, uh, the sound that surrounds us. We call it noise if it's unpleasant, really loud, or just sort of music or for, uh, and other uh, sounds. In some environments, tempo and loudness of the music may be used to arouse customers, to get them to move through the supermarket faster or to linger longer. As some of the uh, fast food chains do, they have to be slower music so that at quiet times of day it won't look like an empty uh, venue. But at lunchtime, when there's a footfall is high, they want people you know, in and out as fast as possible, and hence the tempo matches that. All kind of auditory sensory nudging. Through more, perhaps more subtle effects, and, and two of the things that I'm most struck by is one that kind of a study from an English supermarket in Leicester from about a quarter of a century ago now, showing that you know, people will. Mostly buy French wine if you put French music over the tannoy, put uh, uh, German music on, and suddenly everyone's buying German. A huge reversal in what people choose to buy, but without virtually any of them realizing that the music was having that impact. They all thought they were always going to buy French or German wine. And yet, when you sort of study behavior, you see the influence of this kind of sonic background. In that case, nudging you towards one purchase or another. But there's other studies suggesting if you play classical music, that kind of primes notions of. A quality class and people will spend significantly more and they've done that in a wine cave they've shown that in various restaurants cafeterias so my guess is perhaps the same might also be true in that kitchen or bathroom showroom as well 
I mean, it sounds sort of obvious in a way that that would be the case. Your instinct would tell you that would be true. But the fact that it actually is, and actually works, is absolutely astonishing, really. Is there a why, or is it just a case of it just does? I, uh, as my parents used to say, we don't need a bloody psychologist to tell us that. <laughs> <laughs> the obvious. Uh, but sometimes, you know, they, you know, that question of why um, the psychologists are useful, I think, I think we're born getting our wallets out whenever we hear classical music. So it's probably all learnt through experience, probably associate these kinds of, uh, of soundscapes with these sort, these sort of prime thoughts and memories. The previous time we heard classical music, which may have been in a, a fancy restaurant or a fancy store or an expensive concert, and hence by priming those notions then, fairly easier, maybe are more likely to spend more or to buy the wine that matches the music so we're already thinking in that sort of uh, semantic base. In terms of the kind of the tempo, I guess that... You know, the faster the music, the faster we eat and we drink, and the faster we move through the aisles of the supermarket, then that is probably a matter of entrainment that we very often are kind of entrained to the musical beat, and hence its speed affects our own gestures. And then I guess there might also be a notion of um, if you have venues that are where there are fewer people and where there isn't necessarily much noise, so you might think there of, you know, the, the Swiss bank <laughs> where. Maybe it's deathly silent, but that's kind of, you know, too quiet. And people might get embarrassed about, you know, they, they don't want you to know uh, uh, how much they've got in their account. So in that case, you might use a certain level of noise, as you know, you might use in some quieter restaurants, in order to try and create kind of a cocoon, a sonic cocoon, so that you're kind of confident when you're talking to the salesperson that, you know, you can talk to each other, but you're not really conscious of other people who are wandering around listening in to all your foibles and particular desires around kitchen or bathroom layout. It's one of those things, isn't it, that when, when you start talking about it, you suddenly realise that that music they play in Indian restaurants makes you just want to order more food. You know, it is, <laughs> it, I mean, it's so clever, but it's, it's so sort of instinctive as well. How about other more ambient sounds, you know, lapping waves or birdsong or something like that? I think, you know, one of the big interesting areas for me in the world of sort of uh, interior design, be it for retail or hospitality, hotels or wherever, is biophilia or the nature effect. And this notion that um, uh, exposure to uh, na nature, be it the blues and greens of the water and plants, be it the sounds of birds tweeting or the, or, or the waves or the, or, or the fountains trickling, seems to have a profoundly beneficial effect on us. Uh, and that's true whether we go out for you know, a 10 minute walk at lunchtime into the local park, but also in the built environment, simply by showing images or you know, having plastic pot plants or even having nature soundscapes sort of has a sort of calming and uplifting effect on our well-being. And so I'm seeing that being brought into showroom context, uh, some of the car sales rooms uh, just on the outskirts on the Oxford side and the outskirts of London now have these sort of ambient soundscapes, which are uh, just you know, subtle in the background, but are triggering some sort of a nature-related benefit, I think, and act as a different kind of backdrop to the spaces um, uh, that we inhabit, the showrooms we visit. That sort of nature sounds, but I think also, uh, I remember, when was it? From 20 years ago now, one of the adverts for one of the uh, big kitchen companies, and you know, our kitchens are as quiet as a library was a strap line in the advert in the, in, in the uh, magazine. I'm not sure that's necessarily quite what we want, but you know, a lot of those devices in kitchens think of the, everything from the kettles to the uh, washing machine, dishwasher, make a noise, the coffee machine, certainly. And so those are kind of, you know, sort of maybe informative sounds that in some cases you might want to draw attention to 
We know, for example, you know that people think that washing machines and dishwashers do a better job if they make some noise. Try and sell somebody a silent dishwasher it doesn't feel like it's cleaning. Same with with Hoover's through to the you know the the unbearably loud levels of some kettles that come in at over a hundred decibels when they're boiling or the microwaves ding. So I think there's a bit of sort of sound space there that's. Um, uh, in a show where you might want to draw attention to its absence or its quietness or uh, as, a, as, a, as a sort of selling point emphasize if it sounds like that you can hear the sound of quality i suppose it's um it's like the opposite of the fast food restaurant isn't it you want these sounds that keep people in the showroom I mean, like you're talking about cars these are very similar kind of showroom environments you want people to stay in there for a while feel relaxed and have a look around whereas in i don't know mcdonald's or something the chairs are not very comfortable it's all very white the lights are turned up as high as they can go because they want you in and out and I suppose there's the two big, big uh, trends in sort of the marketing, the notion of sort of a sensory marketing, trying to engage the consumer, the customer, wherever, whatever they're doing or buying, to engaging more of the senses. Uh, and that plays out here, thinking about, okay, what can we do for the consumer's eye to draw them into the store? What can we do to their ear in order to encourage them to interact with the uh, product, say, um, through touch and smell uh, uh, and taste uh, as well? And the other bit will be the kind of, you know, the notion of the experience economy that people don't buy products so much as they buy experiences. They buy the, you know, the feeling of the soft leather chair in Starbucks rather than going there for the for the taste of the coffee. And so we might think in the, in, in the showroom setting, OK, you know, how can we not just show people, demonstrate the kitchen, but sort of, you know, give them that multi-sensory experience and perhaps, you know, the better that they can, the customer can imagine themselves in that space and the more of of their senses that you engage both rationally and if it sounds like this is going to do a good job but also emotionally isn't that a comforting sound or doesn't it sound of luxury or then the more senses you engage in that both rational and emotional way i think the the, the more successful one will be that brings us on very nicely to the smell and the scent of things because i think that's the one that people kind of immediately think that they can influence you know we i think we're quite familiar with the idea of freshly brewed coffee or baking bread wafting about the place the science behind that's very similar I suppose isn't it? it's this idea that's triggering a sense of home a sense of familiarity mm-hmm. and in my uh, uh last book sort of sense hacking i looked through how you could use all the senses in our sort of everyday lives to improve our well-being and, and one of them was thinking about you know the fact that so many of us have spent so much time at home during the covid lockdown and how important the kind of the ambient smell is there to, to well-being and, and how if you're trying to sell your home uh, it's said that you know the, the smell of freshly baked cookies the coffee freshly brewed the bread freshly baking these were great great scents to help sell your home and if that's true then why not you know incorporate those scents into um one's daily experience as kind of a reassuring perhaps nostalgic familiar comforting kind of uh, of smells and as indeed you know we saw in the early days of, of lockdown how many people kind of you know uh, sales of, of bread flour no one could buy in anywhere because everyone was baking bread at home i think in part for that olfactory hit and reassurance that it delivers and hence when one thinks about a showroom especially for a kitchen showroom then you know what should it smell like and if it doesn't smell of anything why not seems uh, an easy one to fix and there you might uh, i mean I'm, I'm, I'm drawn both to two examples one of going around a lot of the um the huge european flatware kitchenware trade shows like a messe in somewhere in germany and it's actually 32 football stadium sized hangers full of every single cup plate uh you're ever going to see but there's absolutely no food there it's all about food and i guess kitchens are all about food as well as a these days, a central living 
point of the home, and yet there's no no food thing there. So how, how do you engage those sort of uh, food-related senses to deliver a multi-sensory, you know, emotional and uh, uh, experience to customers? As as people like um, uh, DoubleTree Hotel chain, if you've ever been there, then when you enter the lobby, you're immediately greeted by the smell of a freshly baked cookie, and you're given that as kind of a surprise treat. That's not normally what I expect when I check into a hotel. But it scented the lobby with this sweet smell. You've got this kind of, you know, gift. And having that sweet taste, I think, also is likely to create kind of a, a sticky memory for, for the guest. And hence, that's a great example, I think, of the use of, of, of scent to um, enhance experience. Now, one of the other things about cars is, of course, that people talk about new car smell, don't they? They love the, the smell of something new, the idea that they've bought something new. How, how does that work in the brain? So it is amazing, this new car smell that uh, you can now buy in bottles and that many of the car companies think very carefully about. It's not a functional part of your new car, but it is a hugely emotionally important part of the experience for, for the purchaser. So how do you optimise that? And I think it's probably, you know, new car smell is probably actually something pretty nasty. If you analyse it chemically, it's all you know, the smell of the sweating leather and volatile organic compounds you don't want to know about. And yet... That smell is something we associate with a very high-value purchase, and hence it comes to be very rewarding and liked as a result. And so to the extent, I don't know how often people normally buy a new uh, kitchen, but maybe it's not on such a different timescale from a new car. You might think, well, you know, car, a new kitchen, uh, at least in my wife's hands, costs as much as a very nice new car would. So if that new kitchen had a particular smell, would that come to take on the same you know, emotional impact and could you use sort of scent in that way deliberately? In the car case, they now deliberately engineer in the smell. It's not natural as it seems, but, you know, what should your new kitchen smell like? And can that act as a bridge to create a new kind of emotional connection and something that will resonate and stay with them? And that maybe you could even think about, you know, selling, sending them home after a few years, a little, a little um, you know, a spray bottle of the new kitchen scent <laughs> to refresh their kitchen and what kind of loyalty would, would build from that sort of a multi-sensory marketing. Right, I've just written that down, Charles. So I've got that now. I've patented that. That wasn't your idea. That was mine. <laughs> <laughs> New kitchen smell. New kitchen smell spray. Yes, okay. I, I'm loving this. <laughs> but you're right, because look, what you don't want is, look, it's just been installed and the bathroom. You don't want it to smell of sealant and, you know, sawn wood and cleaning stuff. You want it to smell like you've lived there. I'm reminded of, it was Philips Television's and no reasonably high value purchase in some cases and they sort of realize that when people uh, they see the television store and then they okay they get one from the from the warehouse and it gets delivered home and there's this you know unboxing moment when your new toy your new thing is taken out of its box out of that plastic bag and the first smell you get is something that's like really stale that's been on the shelf in the factory for who knew how many months or years and if that's your first experience that's really bad and hence what uh, Philips were doing for a while was actually impregnating the air of the bag of their new televisions with, I think, you know, fresh coffee smell. It won't work for you, but for everybody else, it's quite nice to make sure that the first you know, experience was a great one. And hence, that's probably true for, you know, the kitchen or the bathroom. I don't want it to smell plasticky or, or woodworky or sealanty, but rather perhaps some pleasant scent that uh, will linger with me for long after the purchase has rec- receded into memory. But on the flip side of this, obviously in the bathroom, maybe you can answer a question I've always wanted to know, which is why do why are lemons clean? Why do people think lemons <laughs> smell clean? Yeah, so that, um, and why are lemons fast rather than slow? I, I, I throw that one right back at you. <laughs> um, I mean, one might think about the sort of the acidity of lemons, perhaps helping to cut through fat 
so in dishwashing products but probably a lot is also down to convention and sort of history why you know why why do we use a lemon scent or pine scent as another one that's sort of conventionally been associated with cleaning uh products lavender more commonly with uh relaxation and these sort of aromatherapy like scents may have some fundamental pharmacological impact on people but at the same time i think a lot of it is just through almost a placebo effect through experience and custom and convention because obviously those kind of citrusy smells uh, you know and lavender and things like that i suppose if you're in those bathroom displays in that bathroom area that subconscious idea that it's clean and it's going to help you clean and there's a sort of a relaxing air about it it is very very important to selling those kind of environments and probably actually alters our behaviour too, because there are a few studies from the lab and also from a Dutch train where if the carriage or the lab smells clean, forget whether it's lemon scent they used it, but it might well have been, then people uh, don't leave as much litter and tend to have, you know, higher moral thoughts as well, I think. <laughs> so multiple benefits of a, of a clean-smelling bathroom. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? How about smells that turn the consumer off? Are there ones that have the reverse effect, apart from the obvious ones? You know. <laughs> but like, for example, I don't like coffee. I can't stand it. I'm from the north of England. I just drink tea permanently all day. So I, I can't stand the smell of coffee. But are there other sort of smells that are to be avoided, apart from like farting and cigarette smoke and things like that? Yeah, so you are most unusual in that regard. Even I'm from the north of England too, and um, coffee and chocolate turn out to be like two of the world's best smells. Even for people who don't like coffee, normally they like the smell of it. There's a whole lot of research around um, immersion and trying to get people immersed in an experience, often like virtual reality, and there, or in a museum, say, and there it turns out the bad smells are the ones you want. It's the bad smells that really make you immersed and present in the moment. Hence, if you've been to the Yorick uh, Viking Museum in York, then it's this kind of the smell of the bins and the rubbish that is really one of the most evocative uh, smells in that kind of multi-sensory uh, experience. So b- bad smells on one hand are good for immersion, but of course bad on the other hand that people don't like them. You might think about just whether there are certain scents that may be too reminiscent of the past or historic. Really the smell of parmalet violets might take people back to the 70s and that might not be the kind of vibe you're going for. Or it might be something like I've seen um, work saying that, you know, various stores actually have, you know, a, a vase of lilies on the counter to, to sort of scent the space nicely. But that might not be what you want if you've got older clientele because there is research out there suggesting that um, to those who are of a pensionable age then the smell of lilies tends to remind them of funerals. Oh, God. <laughs> Rather than a pleasant thought, so that might be another one. I suppose all this is about always being conscious of it. I suppose if you own a showroom and you're in there every single day and you've been in there for years, it's very easy to become blind to things. And, you know, you might have a look around and check that everything looks okay, but you might not check, hang on a minute, what's that weird smell? Or perhaps it's a bit musty or I can smell the, the traffic on the, on the road outside. You know, that constant being aware of all the sensors when you're doing that check around the showroom every morning. Absolutely. That is one of the real challenges with working with scent and, uh, you know, in the, in the sort of electronic sector. Uh, um, Samsung, I think it was, used to have their experience stores and they had a signature scent of green melon that was released in the stores, which is meant to be you know, universally liked. But the real problem is you know, if you're working in the space, we adapt to smells in a way we don't to other senses. And hence, after a few days, just like your own perfume or the smell of your own home, you're never really aware of it unless you come across it You know, after a long holiday away, you open the front door and suddenly... <laughs> My home smells. That's strange. Yeah. It always Wet smells, dog. you never realised yeah. it. And probably the same is true of a showroom. 
so that makes it sort of difficult to manage without getting other people to come along and tell you what it smells like to somebody who's not working uh, in there uh, full time. Can we just talk about touch for a minute? Because obviously in showrooms like these, yeah, you do you walk around, you open the cupboards, you open the handles, you you, you turn the taps on, or whatever it is. So touch is very, very, very important about it. Yeah, you know, we don't need to explain why that is. But I was wondering about the permission to touch. Do they fundamentally feel that they need to be told they're allowed to? Yes, absolutely. I think maybe we all feel a bit like we're in a in a museum and we've seen too many of those do not touch signs such that we are kind of inhibited from very often interacting with the merchandise. And yet all the marketing, uh, sort of touch marketing research says, if you can get people to touch the merchandise, they will both feel a little bit more like they own it, and then it's more likely to purchase it. And you know, studies from, is it Aldi or Lidl or one of those, or no, IKEA, uh, show that you know people who touch the, the towels are something like six times more likely to end up putting them in their baskets than those who don't touch them. So anything you can do to get your consumers to interact with uh, whatever you're selling has to be a good thing. And there I have seen you know, showrooms and even store windows that just sort of say, you know, explicitly touch me, the big sign. And I think that is the way you have to go because otherwise people will be reticent um, and you want them to touch as much as possible. With the only proviso that there's also kind of a contamination effect, like when you, when, you know, the days when we used to buy real physical newspapers, uh, I'd always pick the newspaper from you know, second or third in the pile. I didn't want the top newspaper because somebody else might have touched it. And so there's this kind of contamination effect. I don't want things that somebody else has had their grubby paws all over. And that might also be um, true in the case of uh, uh, kitchens or bathrooms. Guys, it's so interesting, and I honestly I could talk about this all day, but I'm going to end with a, with a slightly negative question, Charles. So I apologise for that. Is there a danger that some may think this is all manipulating the customer in some slightly nefarious way? People don't like being nudged if they don't know they're being nudged. Does that make sense? I take the question as a compliment because um, <laughs> uh, t- two decades ago, when I was talking about sort of sensory marketing and things, people would just you know, laugh you off and say, "Ah, oh, don't believe that." You know, what do you mean? Changing the music will change what people buy and how much they spend. That'd be ridiculous, you know. And now, when the question comes up very often, isn't this manipulation in the marketplace? Isn't this some sort of evil or you know, hidden persuaders kind of uh, notion? And that says, well, well it's going to be you know, recognition, perhaps, that people are taking the science seriously. And clearly it can be used for uh, to nudge people perhaps in directions they don't want. And you might think then of, you know, the, the fast food uh, restaurants with the, with the music and the colour schemes that get you in and get you out, supposedly. And yet, on the other side of that, I think, is everyone is trying to create an environment that people feel happy in. And the more you can create, curate uh, these multisensory environments uh, that people enjoy experiencing uh, through all the senses, then the longer they're likely to, to linger and perhaps then come to the to the choices that they uh, want themselves. And in the sense hacking book, I sort of mentioned, you know, all this sort of science probably emerged from some of the big and evil companies out there, but by putting it in each and every one of our hands, then hopefully we are ourselves more aware of what's happening to us and the factors that influence us. But nevertheless, we'll probably still end up wanting to go to the hotel that offers us a cookie, to the restaurant where we'd like the sound of the music, but it's not too loud that we can't hear ourselves think. And these kind of curated environments do create the experiences people uh, want. Thank you so much for your time. I, like I say, this is absolutely fascinating s- stuff, and we're barely scratching the surface of the work that you've done. So, look, if anyone wants to go and find out more about this work, I will put the link to Charles's book in the episode description. And all I can say is thank you so much for your time, but I'm going to go out and put some coffee on, even though I don't like it, bake some bread with some lemons in it, <laughs> just because just you've persuaded my subconscious to go and do all these things. So thank you again, and we'll speak again soon. Thank you. 